many of you, uh, our parents, have raised children. So I want you to go back uh, in your mind, in your memory bank, to when your kids were little. And, uh, and if you had multiple kids and they were playing, it would seem, I want to ask you the question, did you ever experience times when your kids jumped from blessing you to disappointing you in less than five seconds flat. They were perfect, and then they were far from perfect almost immediately. They went from playing with one another to fighting with one another. And as a parent, you said, how could you bless me so much and disappoint me so much, almost at the same time. Well, the bottom line up front, the bluff of the morning message is this. Your past does not determine your future. Because as your kids can jump from blessing you to disappointing you in five seconds flat, you as God's child have the potential of jumping from blessing God to disappointing God in five seconds flat. But we have to always remember that our future is not determined by our past. There's always hope for change. Well, our last few messages have introduced us to this most amazing of evenings in Jesus' life. The evening that ended in His arrest... And the next day, his death. And as we have been meditating on this amazing evening, we have spent some time learning about the Passover celebration, where it came from, what it involved, what it represented, and what it was to the Jewish people, the very people that were in that upper room observing the Passover meal. We also learned how that Jesus Christ selected two of the food elements out of the Passover meal and He transformed them into the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal was ending that night. The Passover of Israel ended in the upper room that night. Jesus said this is the last one until we celebrate it together in my kingdom. And that kingdom won't be established until Jesus comes back to earth. And when Jesus comes back the second time, He'll establish His kingdom. And once again, Jesus will celebrate the Passover meal. But that Passover was the last Passover. And Jesus transformed two of the food elements into a memorial service that His people will celebrate as oft as ye do it. Not once a year like the Jews, but as often as you as a church family take this bread and this cup and use it as memory tools to remember what's going to happen to me tomorrow, you will be proclaiming the gospel to those who observe you celebrating the Lord's table. We we learned about that. And, and And then we also, because involved in that, Passover meal and that celebration of the Lord's Supper has been the use of a beverage that comes from grapes. And 
is often called wine in the Bible. And that's such a huge controversial issue as to what that wine was that last week we looked at what wine was in the biblical, in the biblical times. And so the evening was long. The conversations around the Passover meal were varied and were directed by Jesus Christ as he knew this was his last opportunity before his death to prepare his disciples for what was ahead. And so he discussed a number of strategic things with the apostles in that upper room that night. The most complete record of the content of what Jesus Christ taught is found in the Gospel of John from chapter 13 to chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give abbreviated accounts. They hit highlights of what was discussed and what Jesus Christ taught. And those highlights that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke provide for us some, some important highlights that open a window into the soul of those men. Those twelve men in whose hands Jesus will place the responsibility to evangelize the entire world with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's in their hearts? What kind of people are they? They are the product of Jesus Christ's ministry. They're the, the best of the best of the product of Jesus Christ's ministry. They're the leaders that he handpicked and that he spent enormous amounts of time with. They are the top 12 products of his ministry. And he is going to place in their hands the responsibility of evangelizing an entire world. What's in their hearts? The highlights that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give to us helps us look into the souls of those men that Jesus will leave this great responsibility with. You know, there are major situations in life that we experience during which a window opens down deep into your heart. And if you're thoughtful and observant, when those experiences occur, and you see how you react to those experiences, you have a unique opportunity to get to know you. The prophets even ask, who can know his own heart? Yeah, it's opportunities that come infrequently in life that we get the, the chance to look into our own lives and know what's there by what comes rumbling out without a plan without a control of better judgment. We just say, we just do. And what rolls out is an opportunity to know who you are. And that's what we're learning this morning as we look at this portion of, of the upper room evening that Jesus spent. Who is this group of twelve men? What are they really like? Are these 12 seasoned men ready to charge hell with a squirt gun? 
are these 12 men that are so deeply in tune with the person of Jesus Christ, shaped by his teaching for his ministry, that they are rock-solid, top-drawer, best-of-the-best, cutting-edge Christian leaders. Who are they? What are they like? Well, I believe that we can get to know who they are and by application learn some lessons about how to get to know who we are by observing five characteristics of this evening. The first characteristic is the gravity of the moment. Back in verse number 15, earlier in the, the, uh, from our text, back in verse number 15, Jesus Christ said, With desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This opening statement of Jesus Christ underscores the gravity of this evening. Jesus said, I've desired with great desire. I've been looking forward to this evening. I've been planning for this evening. This evening is so vital to us that with great desire, I've desired to spend this evening with you, this final Passover that will occur tonight. And then in verse number 17 to verse number 20, Jesus Christ took the piece of bread and talked about his broken body. Tomorrow, I'm going to be ripped into shreds. He took the cup containing the fruit of the vine. He said, this is a new covenant that I'm making with you. Based upon my shed blood for you. Jesus has just talked to them about the gravity of his crucifixion. The bread, the fruit of the vine, what it means. Jesus Christ is saying to them as Jewish people who have every year looked back to Egypt and remembered Passover lambs that were slain, that you might escape the slavery of Egypt from this point on. My followers will look back to what happens tomorrow and they will look back to the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world and they will meditate on the brokenness that I will physically endure and they will remember the pouring out of my blood for their sin. I mean, this is, this, this is the gravity of the moment. This is what Jesus Christ is expressing to them. The gravity of this moment of reflection on what's going to happen tomorrow. And then Jesus said in verse number 21, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me right now on this table. And I can imagine Jesus lounging on the low couches that they, in their culture, they would lounge on up to a low table and, and they, would, they would, Jesus would look around the table, maybe even lock eyes on each one of the twelve men, one after another. Do you know what's going to happen to me tomorrow? But one of you. One of you at this very table is going to be the one who tips off my enemies and turns me over to them. 
the gravity of this moment. As Jesus Christ reflects upon his own death and the unbelievable that one of the top twelve hand-picked men is going to actually betray him in the hands of the enemies. This is a moment of gravity. And I want you to notice the second characteristic. Not only is it a moment of gravity, it's a moment of shock. Verse number 23, and, and they began to inquire among themselves. The twelve men around the table began to look around and said, and, and then they began to inquire among themselves, which of them it was that should do this thing? They began to look. There's only twelve of them with Jesus around the table. There's only just, and they begin to look at each other. And they begin to inquire. They're asking questions of each other. Trying to figure out who of us, shock of all shocks, after all we've been through with Him, one of us. And they began to inquire. Luke gives us such a brief glimpse. I want to broaden it out a little bit. They're inquiring. They're asking questions. Matthew's record reads this way. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it I? Mark's Gospel records it this way. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say one, say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Their first round of questions as they inquired of who it would be, that would betray Jesus Christ. Their first round of questions were directed at Jesus Christ. Jesus, is it me? Someone else said, Jesus, am I the one? The shock of this moment turned into deep introspection. Could it be me? Could I be the one? This is humility. Oh, how this must have blessed the heart of Jesus Christ. This sense of humility. No finger pointing. This sense of humility that said, I'm capable of that. I know my weakness. I feel out of place with these heroes of the faith around me. I wonder, could it be me? Each one sensed the possibility that they really could possibly be the one. Peter wondered, could it be me? Andrew wondered, could it be me? Matthew wondered, could it be me? One by one, they asked Jesus, is it I? Is it I? Another asked, is it I? They each knew their own struggles. They each knew their own doubts. 
They each knew their own weaknesses. Each one knew they were capable. Is it I? Here's weakness, doubt, questions, worry, fear. How that must have blessed the heart of Jesus Christ. God is impressed with brutal, humble honesty. God disdains pride in the human heart. God disdains anyone that stands up tall and says, not me. But he is blessed by the brutal honesty of humble people that are honest enough to admit their weaknesses and their struggles. How that must have blessed the heart of Jesus Christ. Then the inquiry began to vacillate, began to shift. One of them asked, John's, John's record of the account tells us that the questions went from, is it I, to who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? Simon Peter saw that, and, that, uh, that John, the Apostle John, was closest to Jesus around the table. As, as they were kind of lounging maybe up on one elbow there around the table the way they did in their custom, in their culture. Uh, John was closest to Jesus. John's lips were closest to Jesus' ears. Simon Peter looked over and said, John, ask him who. And John must have turned and whispered in Jesus' ear. I'll read it from John's Gospel. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John never mentioned his own name in his writings as he wrote the Gospel of John. He never spoke of himself highly. He always just called himself just one of the disciples, the one, one whom Jesus loves. Now leaning on Jesus' bosom, the one that was closest to Jesus was one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should uh, ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to do this thing? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. Jesus said, I'm going to dip some of the, the bread and one of the food products there at the table and when I dip it I'm not going to eat it myself like I usually do I'm going to, I'm, during the meal sometime I'm going to dip it I'm going to give it away the one that I give it to that's the one that's going to betray me and when he had dipped the sop he gave it to Judas Iscariot the son of Simon and after this and after the sop Satan entered into him then said Jesus unto them that thou doest do quickly now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. That would lead us to believe that it didn't happen immediately. Sometime during the meal, Jesus handed the sop to Judas. Jesus looked at Judas and said, what do you do? Do it quickly. 
Judas got up and left. And no one at the table knew to, for what intent Jesus spake to him, what thou doest do quickly. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, he was the treasurer, he carried the money bag. He, he paid the bills for all of the group, wherever they were traveling and buying food and such like. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said to him, go buy those things we have need of against the feast. Maybe they were running out of food on the table. They've still got a few hours yet this evening, maybe. And some of them thought that Jesus sent Judas out on an errand to buy some more food. And, and, uh, or that he was going to go out and should give something to the poor. Judas talked about his concern for the poor. Just a few days ago, when Jesus was anointed, and that expensive perfume was used to anoint the body of Jesus, it was Judas who raised the objection and said, what a waste, we could have sold that fragrance and given it to the poor. And so now, just a few days later, some thought Judas was being sent out by Jesus to go give some of the money to the poor. You know what's really interesting? Nobody had a clue who Jesus was speaking of. Nobody had a clue. Judas had played the part of a hypocrite so well that not one of those men suspected that Judas could possibly betray Jesus Christ. And even when Judas left, they didn't suspect anything awry. Nobody suspected Judas. He had played the part of the hypocrite so very well. This is the shock. The shock of the moment. They're shocked that anyone would betray Jesus. And it seems that each one is aware of his own weakness and wonders, could I be the one? And then there's the question of who it actually might be. Ask Jesus, who? And all of a sudden, the questioning changes. Instead of, could it be me? It became I'll bet it's you. And this leads us to the third characteristic. I call it the self-focus of the moment. The self-focus of the moment. Look at verse number 24. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. There are two words that jump off that verse, off that page to me. What are they? What are the two words out of that verse that really jump out? Strife and greatness. Strife and greatness. They're arguing with each other. There's a strife amongst them around the table. And what is the argument over? I'm better than you. Self-focus. How quickly they went from, is it I, to I'm greater than you. How quickly they went from humility to pride. How quickly they went to, I'm weak, I could do that. To, I'm strong, I'm better than you. How quickly their heart was laid bare. Now they're self-absorbed with their own greatness, arguing over who's most important, who's most faithful, like a group of 
vacillating children that in one moment their mom is so proud and the next moment mom is pulling her hair out. One moment Jesus is so blessed with their humility, their awareness of their own weakness, and the next moment Jesus is shaking his head because they're arguing on who's the greatest among them. The word greatest speaks of something that's great or large, and it's used at times with reference to age, who's the greater in age, which makes sense because Jesus will say in verse number 26, he that is greatest, let him be as the younger. They were arguing about who should have the greatest respect. This is a culture of respecting elders. This would make as much sense to us today because Young people today have very little respect for their elders. It's a horrendous problem in our culture today. But this is a culture of respect for elders. And they were arguing over which of them deserved the most respect. Not on the basis of how old are you, how old are you, how old are you. I'm the eldest, so I deserve the most respect. But I deserve the greatest respect as you would as you would. Honor an elder. I'm the one who has the greatest value and worth as a wise elder. I deserve honor more than you. And they're arguing over their own greatness. I mean, this spells trouble. This is the group into whose hands Jesus will place the responsibility to evangelize the world. This is the cream of the crop. This is the product of three years of ministry. These are his leaders. No wonder he's going to save them a little bit later on. You guys just hang around Jerusalem, because if you go out and try to evangelize the world now, you are going to be the biggest flop. You can't do it. Hang around till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then and only then, because you don't have what it takes. And you're going to need the Holy Spirit more than you realize. I mean, this is the cream of his crop. This is his 12 apostles. Now, did you, did you notice what's missing? Who is sympathetic to Jesus? He's going to die tomorrow. They're going to rip him to shreds tomorrow. They're going to crucify him tomorrow. Who cares about Jesus? All they care about is I'm better than you are. I deserve more honor than you deserve. What's John sitting up there closest to Jesus? I deserve to sit closer to Jesus. And they're fighting amongst themselves over who is greater than the rest of the crowd. After Jesus just talked to them, he just took a piece of bread and broke it and said, my body broken. He just took some of the cup, the fruit of the vine said, my blood will be shed. He's just talked to them about the depth of his agony and suffering. But there's no consideration for Jesus Christ. They're so self-focused. They're so self-absorbed. All they care about 
is whether or not I deserve more than you deserve. This is a moment of self-focus. How is Jesus going to respond to this display of carnality? How, what's Jesus going to do in response? That brings us to our fourth characteristic. The fourth characteristic has to do with light of the moment. Light as in truth being shown into the moment like the choir sang. We'll hold forth. We'll send the light. Hold up the light. Jesus is going to shine light into the moment. Jesus is going to respond to their display of carnality with light that produces hope. Hope that they can change. Hope that truth can change them. Hope that they can learn how to think better and do better. Not giving up on them. I, you know, I, can, I can imagine Jesus at that point saying, Okay, everybody out of here. I'm going to go find me 12 more men. Jesus doesn't react by getting rid of them. He responds to them by shining light into the darkness of their thinking, their faulty thinking, because Jesus believes they can change. That truth can change them and make them someone that they aren't tonight. Light. Learn a lesson. I, I, I thought it was so important that I, I typed it out in your little worksheet. Learn that in a situation where bad decisions are being made due to faulty thinking, you understand that's what's happening here. They're not thinking clear, and so their, their, their faulty thinking erupted in, a, in actions of fighting. They made a decision to fight one another because of faulty thinking. Now, when you're in a situation where bad decisions are made, Due to faulty thinking, a remedy requires two things. Number one, a remedy requires someone willing to shed light on the faulty thinking. Somebody who knows better. Who's willing to take the time and shed light onto the faulty thinking of the person who's made a bad decision. But that's not all it requires. Number two, it requires someone willing to listen. Willing to listen to somebody trying to help. You take out either of those two, you have a dead-end situation. Faulty thinking, leading people to make bad decisions, and nobody is there to sit down and shed light into their bad thinking. Or... Faulty thinking resulted in bad decisions and someone came and said, let me help you. And they rejected the help. They didn't want help. They didn't want somebody to talk to them. Either one is a dead end street when faulty thinking results in bad decisions. Fortunately, in the upper room, we've got Jesus willing to take time to shed light into their faulty thinking and the apostles willing to listen. Do you understand that is the heart and soul of discipleship and mentoring? 
People make bad decisions in life because they're not thinking straight. They're not thinking biblically. Romans 12 tells us we have to renew our minds. The renewal of our minds is crucial to the change of our lives. We have to begin to think like God thinks. When people don't think like God thinks, that's called faulty thinking. Faulty thinking leads to bad decisions. And when a mentor comes in and says, let me spend time with you and help you think like God thinks. And if that person is willing to be helped, you've got a dynamic process called discipleship or mentoring. If you don't have both of those in place, people's lives don't end up changing for the better. So we had light coming into the moment. Look at verse number 25. Verse 25, here's Jesus' reaction. He said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. Jesus said, guys, you're not thinking clearly. You're talking about who's most important, who's greatest. You're not thinking clearly. You need to understand something. In an unsaved world, in a secular environment, that's how authority works. In a secular environment, in unsaved people, there's somebody who exercises authority over you and tells you what to do. I lost my verse. Verse number 25. Kings exercise lordship, exercise authority. But then Jesus said, that's not the way we do it here in my kingdom. The guy who's the king isn't the greatest. You're wanting to be honored. You're wanting to be respected. You're wanting the rest of the guys here in this room to look at you and respect and honor you because you're the greatest. It's not because you're the king. That's the way the unsaved world works. But in my kingdom, it's different. Verse number 26, But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. That's interesting. You want to deserve the respect of an elder, then act like a child. What? Be as the youngest one in the room? Yeah, in that culture, the younger ones serve the older ones. And when Jesus Christ said you have to be like the younger, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be like the younger, that means you're not great because of who you boss around. You're great because of what you do to serve people. He said, if you want to be great, you've got to be as the younger. Verse 26, and he that is chief is he that doth serve. Here we are around this table and nobody's washed anyone's feet. We didn't have a servant here to wash our feet when we came into the upper room tonight, did we? So Jesus, the greatest one in the room, the one who deserved the greatest honor in the room, the one that everyone should respect with the height of honor. 
Jesus took the basin. Jesus took the towel. Jesus got on his knees. And Jesus did what a servant would do. He washed the feet of every one of those men. Why? Because if you want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, get a basin and get a towel. Find the mop and clean the bathroom. Learn how to serve people. Jesus said, in my kingdom, the chief is he that doth serve. And he gave an illustration. He says, whither is greater? He that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Jesus said, you come in for a meal. Who's the greatest person in the room? The one that sits at the head of the table? The family that sit around the table? Or the servant that was hired to serve the meal? Who's the greatest? Well, it's the family that hired the servant. They have to be the greatest. And Jesus said, but I am among you as he that serveth. In my kingdom, get used to serving. Because when judgment day comes, the one who is honored the greatest will be the one who served the lowliest. The one who is honored as the eldest, the greatest, will be the one who serves. Jesus modeled what we call servant leadership. A ranking naval officer said to me one day, I heard him say, and I wrote it down, never forgot it. He said, perfect leadership exists when the one in authority never thinks about it. And the one under authority never forgets it. Perfect leadership. When the one in authority doesn't have to say a thing about authority. But the one under authority never forgets his position. That's the greatest Outflow of leadership. Someone else said one day, you can always tell if you have a servant's heart when you see how you react when someone treats you like a servant. (laughs) That was another keeper that I wrote down. Do you have a servant's heart? Do you have a servant's heart? That's like the question, are you humble? Oh, yes, I'm humble. (laughs) How do you know if you have a servant's heart? When someone treats you like a servant, see what wells up within you. And you'll know whether you have a servant's heart by how you react when you're treated like a servant. Well, Jesus shone light into the moment to correct faulty thinking that led to their very poor decisions. That brings us to our last characteristic. And that is grace of the moment. Verse number 28. Jesus, and this is is so profound. How will Jesus characterize his feelings toward this group of prideful, self-focused, arrogant men who desperately need to learn how to think differently? Will he give them what what they deserve? Will he lash out at them? How is he going to respond and react to their self-focused selfishness. He was gracious to them. In verse number 28, he reminded them about their past. He said, ye are they which have continued with me in my temptation. Did you notice? He didn't point out what they did wrong. 
He pointed out the best thing he could say about them. I like that. Do you remember people for what they do wrong, or do you remember people for what they do right? When you think of someone, what is the top thought? Something they did wrong or something they did right? How's Jesus going to respond? He responds with grace. Grace is what? Unmerited favor. It's favor that I don't deserve to have. And Jesus looks and says, you know, when I think of your past, you've been with me through all of these temptations, all the trials, all the problems. You've stood for me. You've been on my team. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and when everyone was against me, you stood with me. Jesus Christ was gracious, remembering the goodness in their past. And then he was gracious by looking at their present. He said in verse number 29, he said, and not only what you used to be, but and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father has appointed unto me. That's their present. I'm going to send you out as kingdom builders. And everyone that gets saved becomes a part of my kingdom. And when I come back, all the saved will be the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ said, you guys really messed up tonight, and I was so disappointed, but I trust you. I have hope that you can change. I have hope that you won't be in the future what you are tonight. And so I give you a position of responsibility I give you a position of service. I appoint to you a kingdom, just like my father appointed that kingdom to me. Oh, this is grace, is it not? This is gracious behavior to selfish, ego-driven individuals that are a big disappointment. Jesus trusts and hopes that they will listen to what he said. And there will be good come out of it. Past, present. And then in verse number 30, he spoke of their future. That ye may, in the future, eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You guys, I have trust. I have hope. I have confidence that you're going to grow and develop and mature. And one day you're going to sit on a throne. You can read about that in different parts of the New Testament, those the thrones ruling over the people on earth during the kingdom. Jesus Christ spoke about their future. He's committed to their victorious future, and He tells them about it. Oh, I love this. I love this. Because Jesus looks at their state right now, and He says, I'm, I'm disappointed. Or I, I imagine He thinks, I'm disappointed. You made, a bad, you made some bad decisions tonight. So let me correct you by speaking truth into your experience. And I believe you're going to change. And so I'm trusting you right now with responsibility and opportunity. And one day you're going to rule sitting on a throne. Oh, the gravity of this evening is off the charts. A glimpse into the hearts of a team of men who will receive the assignment to evangelize the world. Imagine if God looked down to this group right here and asked for every member of CBC to stand to your feet. And God looked down while the members were standing and God chose 12 of you. 
And he got the 12 of you that he selected to come forward and stand here in front of him. And God said to the 12 of you, I'm going to die for you tomorrow and then I'm going to give you the responsibility to evangelize the entire world. Would you say, I'm ready? Or would you say, I don't think I'm cut out for that. I don't think I could. Couldn't you choose somebody else? Your future is not determined by your past. And the future of those men in that room were not dependent upon their failure that night. Because they can change. And if Jesus selected you, handpicked you, to send out to evangelize the world, Jesus Christ is trusting you and believes that you can change and you can grow. You say, I can't talk to people. That's what Moses said. God can fix that. You say, I'm not cut out for that. Yeah, I know. You're not cut out for that. But Jesus said, go. This chapter says to me that everything comes out of the grace, a gracious God and a gracious Savior that doesn't deal with me on the basis of who I am right now. He deals with me on the basis of what He sees as potential in my life. And He can fix, if I'm willing to listen, He can fix my faulty thinking and grow me. And these guys... Turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ, the Bible says. Every one of them, of course, Judas committed suicide that night. He was replaced by Matthias in Acts 1. So there was 12. Every one of those men except for one were martyred for their boldness in presenting Christ to a world that didn't know Him. Because they changed. You can change. You can be who God wants you to be if you're willing to listen to God. Be helped to be able to be the person God wants you to be.